For February 18th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 242. The Harlem Snake is eating its own Harlem tail. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the Bleeding Edge, I'm Matthew Rather, your host, here with the panel to overthink uh, videos and cartoons and uh, televisual uh, stimulation, all sorts. Uh, so, panel, your question tonight. If you were to name a dance <laughs> after the place that you live... <laughs> a la the Harlem Shake. What, uh, what would it consist of? What would the dance actually physically be? Uh, uh, just as the Harlem Shake is the kind of like what rhythmic jerking around of one's upper body, right? Like, or the you know the like kind of shoulder shimmy thing that 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 consists of. What is uh, what is your dance? First in the alphabet, drink. It's Peter Fenzel. Hey, it's a horse, Peter Fenzel. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit hoarse today, so I do apologize. But I have my official Yogi Honey Lemon Throat Comfort Spirit uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance tea to help me through this podcast. Uh, so I'm excited. Is it the same? Is it the same box, Pete, that you were drinking it out of last last year, or did you get a new box of no. Honey Lemon Throat Coat? I got I got a new box. I got a second box because it's medicinal, oh, yeah. and so it probably has like an expiration date, like a lot of medicines do. The tea will lose its potency, I'm sure, and its healing power after a certain amount of time. Um, but yeah, no, this is like the year anniversary. Like This is because I just got back from the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival, and this is the one-year anniversary of when I saw, um, at least by the improv calendar, when I saw Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, also horse for that podcast. So <laughs> Then it was yeah. just from screaming, Nick Cage is so awesome, over and over yeah. and over again. Ah. Okay, so I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, and the Somerville Shuffle is a very specific thing, and it is happening now. Uh, the Somerville Shuffle involves the conflicting priorities and the conflicting rules, wherein when the, it snows, there are snow emergencies that require you to park your car on a certain side of the street. Uh, but there are also rules that require you to park your car on alternate sides of the street that work independently of whether or not there's a snow emergency. And so the timing of the snow emergency is, uh, is, is it will sometimes be somewhat arbitrary and people have to pay attention to it to know when they have to move their car back and forth across the street. So I would say if I were to convert that, the obvious thing is just to like make it like a ghost ride the whip dance, right? Where basically the, the goal is where it's a dance you do with your car is what I mean by <laughs> that. Like, like ghost riding the whip when you like roll your car down the street and you get out and dance and you get back in and you drive it, which I don't recommend. I don't think it's a good idea. But the Somerville shuffle would be like um, managing to turn your wheels far enough to the side that your car just goes like horizontally across the street. Which isn't really possible with like rack and pinion steering, but maybe there's some sort of way of doing it. Um, it's this. It's like the Soldier Boy, but automotively. Yeah, it would be like a sideways shuffle of your car, like back and forth across the street, preferably with people of buckets full of confetti that they dump on top of the car, forcing it to go the other way. Uh, is, yeah. is the uh, is the Somerville Shuffle exactly the same as the Tokyo Drift? Then, huh. uh, well, the Tokyo Drift has a little bit more forward momentum, I suppose, but otherwise, <laughs> it probably involves hitting the handbrake, and I'm sure that Bow Wow would be a major contributor to making it popular, just like he did with Tokyo Drifting. So, no longer little, he is but the Bow Wow. 
uh, and he is he is uh, he is shuffling <laughs> every day. He is shuffling, shoveling. In fact, the Somerville shuffle. It's a great joke. You could rhyme it in the song with shovel and shuffle. That's gold. That's comedy gold, people. That's that's gonna do it. Uh, our work here is done. Drop the mic. Walk away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Somerville Shuffle from Pete Fenzel. Next in the alphabet, uh, we don't see him nearly enough. It's Jordan Stokes. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm in Brooklyn, and I was trying to, to figure out, like, would it be the Brooklyn Condescend uh, or, the, or the, the Brooklyn, like, you know, uh, fixed wheel bicycle ride. And I decided that actually it's probably it's the Brooklyn Gentrify. And the motion of the dance is you pay too much for coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> at Starbucks? Really? It's not like an artisanal yeah. coffee house? Yeah, it's, I mean, the Starbucks is a bargain compared with the, like, the $6 Intelligentsia coffee in my neighborhood. Well, I mean, I think oh, sorry, there's there's waves, there's waves upon waves of gentrification, right? Like the boutique places get forced out by the uh, the big box chains. Fair enough. See, I was hoping that Intelligentsia Coffee was actually the name of a coffee brand. It is, or, in fact. The, oh, I thought you were just making it up because it would be too absurd to make it actually the name of. No, a coffee. the the actual intel <laughs> uh, the the actual Intelligentsia Shun Intelligentsia Coffee because uh, though it is you know artisanally produced. Uh, it's too big, right? And there are sort of second generation small batch roasters uh, now that um, you know that we prefer. Is there like literati or like what? What, 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 other, what are some of the other terms? I, guess? I actually, I, God, I I am such a cliche, Pete. Like I actually go to a place in LA called the Literati Cafe. Uh, they have they have excellent paleo friendly, you know, salads. Really, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, so the the Brooklyn condescend, but isn't isn't there an aspect to that, Jordan, where it's like someone else is doing it wrong? Usually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, if I were to tell you all how to actually do it, though, that would make it harder for me to step back and and judge you all. Fair enough. Uh, it so does. Re- is it? It's just a series of YouTube videos with like ten thousand dislikes. <laughs> just like right. everyone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And it moves, it moves like farther and farther from the urban center is the, you know, is the motion of the, sure of the, sure. uh, here in, in my Culver city neighborhood of, um, uh, of Los Angeles, the bleeding edge of America, I, uh, I would like to call it the Culver city stroll, I think. And, uh, because I, you know, I chose this neighborhood for its walkability, which is unheard of in LA, which is a, you know, a car city and I can get to, to everything, all the services and nightlife and, you know, all the crap that I need, um, on foot. And, uh, this was attractive to me when I, when I rented my apartment here. Um, so, uh, the Culver city stroll is, uh, that it's that walk that a resident or a visitor to this neighborhood takes from restaurant to restaurant at happy hour time when the patios are all full and you can't get a you know a nice seat out in the beautiful sunshine so it's the kind of the loping uh you know i'm i'm miming it now you can't see it because uh this is great radio but um 
<laughs> you know, I'm I'm like I'm like swinging my shoulders back and forth nonchalantly, and like uh, in my uh, in my IKEA swivel chair, sticking my uh, feet out one at a time in order to uh, perform the Culver City stroll, which is this sort of nonchalant uh, walk from happy hour place to happy hour place, um, trying to disguise the mounting rage because you feel entitled to a prime <laughs> uh, seat out on the patio to drink three dollar margaritas and eat you know dollar artisanal tacos in uh you know in the glorious sunshine sure yeah. sure the, the nonchalant walk that becomes increasingly chalant as happy hour gets closer <laughs> and closer <laughs> over my my life has been a, a, a process of increasing chalants yeah. <laughs> is that can you can you is, is culver city call that call happy hours or chalants that- <laughs> So why are we talking about this? Well, we, uh, you know, um, we try to take up the the latest pop culture thing, and it seems like I, we might even be a little late on the bandwagon here. But um, we t- <laughs> we talked about uh, before uh, bringing up the uh, the Harlem. I, oh God, I can't even. I can't even. The, the Harlem Shake, right? Yes, I participated yeah. in the making of a Harlem Shake video this weekend, and I thought it was interesting. And it turns out to be something that's happening all over the place and is very popular. Uh, the video is not available yet, as far as I know. They're still editing it and going to post it, which is funny because these things take very, very little time to make. But uh, <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> they haven't yet edited together the both of the shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're all traveling, but yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to like keep looking and maybe it'll be posted while the podcast is. Yeah, Cause I mean, everyone comes with their own oversized paper mache head, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So for people who don't know what the Harlem shake stuff is, it's, it's like a, it's a new, it's a song, right? I mean, like this sounds sort of like it's going to be kind of a retro Motown kind of song or whatever. Um, and, and it's the, the hook is taken from an old rap song, but it's more of a contemporary electronic dance song. Um, and it has like a uh, a moment where someone says "Do the Harlem Shake," and then it changes tone, you know, not like pitch, but like it changes feel dramatically. And you make a video where, in the first part of it, it's either a whole bunch of people just sort of hanging around and one person dancing, or like just sort of one person hanging around. And then after the "Do the Harlem Shake," all of a sudden it's lots and lots of people dancing around crazy, right? And so everybody from high school sports teams to coworkers to comedy groups, you know, to like colleges up and down the social spectrum, posting a lot of these videos to YouTube of themselves and their friends doing the Harlem Shake. These and last the, 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 like the identity aspect of it seems to be important. Like I saw, um, uh, I saw on my Facebook feed, like people were very proud, like that their alma mater had produced, uh, whether it be their high school or their college, like had produced a Harlem Shake video, right? And it's like, oh man, like I miss Dalton, you know? Or yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure exactly. if I know anybody from Dalton, hmm. but but um, it, you know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, my CrossFit gym did one, for example, um, and it, I wasn't there for it because I was out of town. But yeah, exactly. There's a lot of pride. It's like this is us. This is what we do. Um, which is interesting. Kind of, yeah, kind of hilarious because what what we do turns out to be what everyone else does. Yeah, exactly. But we're doing it our way. Uh, and it's interesting to see, well, what symbols do people choose to denote that this is the one that we're doing our way, right? right. Like, uh, you know, there'll be a mascot if it's a college team. Matt, you, we, were, we were bringing up while we were watching some of these. A lot of these videos have giant props, 
right? Like they have giant either cardboard cutouts or posters or like swimming noodles or some sort of other giant like object that gets incorporated. And I, and I think one of the potential explanations- and, and this is like this is a sort of amateur version of raising the stakes. I think. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, to, to co-opt it. It's not going to get better than that. We're done. It's yeah. a larger thing. Like, how great would it be if, like, if Breaking Bad, the first episode, you know, he's in an RV and he's cooking meth. And then the second episode, he's in a bigger RV cooking meth. And then, like, sure. it just keeps getting to be progressively. Or, right. Yeah. The, the, cano- the canonical example from the, you know, cinema classic Battleship that we talked about when, <laughs> when we did the podcast on that was, like, well, we have to get from here to there. How do we raise the stakes? What if we were carrying a very heavy bomb? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like the guys have to physically carry the bomb on their shoulders. Yes, Down right. the hallway. And Rihanna <laughs> and, and Tim Riggins from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> And two other characters that I forget have to like get the get the bomb right. So like one of the and and this is like this is amateur hour. I'm sorry uh, to be unkind, but but it is. It is because it's done for the love. That's amateur, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. They're doing this for the thing that they love, you know. So it is amateur. Like well, yeah, very- I think that everyone in every uh, Harlem Shake video is a dedicated professional who spent years like <laughs> viral five video years of ballet, five years of tap at this. <laughs> Actually, or, or even like a professional like a single advertising agency and they all say at the end don't try this at home <laughs> yeah. they, aggressively, uh, they aggressively litigate against people who make their own Harlem Shake videos so we, we Pete was sending us Harlem Shake videos before the podcast and I think they came from Know Your, know Your Meme a, a number of them and there was one in which um, there was one in which there, uh, the, it was shot in what looked like a living room and yes, more dancers, but, uh, you know, appeared at the, the crucial moment, but, um, it, uh, it was only half a dozen people and the lead guy poured a carton of milk over his head, uh, <laughs> while the dancing was going on. That is raising the stakes, my friends. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting <laughs> thing. Cause it's like, there's that point in the song where he says, do the Harlem shake. Is is a is a it only sort of it has semantic content right like there are things huh. that, that word means those words mean uh, but at the same time there's a lot of leeway for like what is going to happen with this I don't want to call it a modulation I don't want to I mean maybe it's a modulation this Whatever. sort of inflection point between the the one part of the song and the other yeah, the yeah. Drop. I mean, you can call yeah. it a drop <laughs> call it a drop you could call it the yeah. drop that's right that's right call it what it is I guess right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, how do you illustrate this? And, and the, the humor of it is in the suddenness of the, of the change and then the sort of closure where you kind of – your brain is trying to figure out how the change happened and there's a recognition of it and it's funny because it's harmless or something like that. Um, I mean, I don't know, Stokes. You're the musicologist here. Uh, do you have anything to say about drops and how they function either like semantically? Because semantics and music always gets me a little bit bound up because I'm a word mm-hmm. guy. And we get to pretend yeah. that we actually care about the meanings of words rather than the way in which they're said. Um, <laughs> whereas, whereas music is famously devoid of semantic content, right? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know what like, crescendo or allegro even mean. If they mean. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, but, but those are, so those obviously have meanings, but those are words for describing music. They aren't, uh, they aren't musical things in themselves. Right. Um, very often when people try to talk about the semantic content of music, they end up talking about the semantic content of the language that we use to describe music. Like, I could talk to you about the semantics of drop as, as a word referring to a thing. Um, what's interesting about the drop is that it's sort of, 
it reduces the content of the song to that moment in a very interesting way. Um, that like, because it's such a point of inflection, the only way that you can have meaning is by the differences that you draw between what happens before and after that point, which is, is like kind of true of musical form in general, but <laughs> it gets cranked up a lot there. So if you have something before that is very high, then you kind of have to have something after that is very, very low. And that's sort of the way it typically works. Um, although, I, man, I'd have to double back and check this. I feel like technically the drop is where the bass actually drops out. And then the part where it comes back in uh, is just like, doesn't doesn't officially have a name, but has has come to be called the drop um, in any case. because people Oh, so it like, actually shifted meaning as... Uh as people refer to that section of the song, the song, the, the section is not really one moment, but two moments. It's right. a pair of moments, and that we we used to use drop to refer to the first, the open parenthesis of the drop, but we now sure. use drop to refer to the closed parenthesis of the drop. Yeah, and when you like all of the Harlem Shake videos, you only get the closed parenthesis, right? Like there's a, you are to presume that at some point the song had more stuff going on, uh, and then. But but you come in in media race, <laughs> then uh, then it uh, it all jumps back in. Although that's, I think that's actually that's really interesting. That's really interesting because what is that saying then? If 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 there's something structurally about this that's saying that the stuff that happens after "Do the Harlem Shake" and the Harlem Shake song is something that at some point had to have been happening previously and stopped, then that's sort of telling you. Uh, that when I walk into, say, like I walk in, say that a bunch of people who worked at a Starbucks or at, at a at an Intelligentsia coffee shop, right, <laughs> um, made a Harlem Shake video, and, and I walk into uh, that Intelligentsia coffee and I see people just sort of standing around. I know about that Intelligentsia coffee that at times when I'm not there, they are like doing their crazy dancing, right? Mm. It's like part of their energy, like the things that they are doing in the sort of uh, post drop. Uh, part of the Harlem Shake video are part of an everyday or repeating occurrence. It's not like this one time everything was different. It's sort of like this has always, you have always been doing the Harlem Shake. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually, I mean, we don't want to lean too hard on the, the musical metaphor that I gave you there because it is also, it has become a, a conventional way to begin a techno song is like begin very light, very spare, very uh, restrained. And then everything goes crazy very quickly. Yeah. But, I, I think that like grunge rock in the early nineties could have told us, you know, right. Like uh, they had something to say about that trick as well. The, the loud, soft, loud thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or soft, loud, soft. Right. Yeah, right, right, sure. Well, you typically end loud, right? I guess so, right, yeah. Here we, <laughs> well, here we are now, entertain us. <laughs> yeah. Um, only more so, though, I, I feel like, with, with this stuff. Because there's just there's more sonic variety to electronic dance music than there ever was to grunge rock. For simple reasons that, like, you know, if you have a sampler, the entire sonic palette of grunge rock is available to you, plus everything else. Um so you you can you can make the inflection points even more so, but still I, I think that um that that Pete's right. Like when you look at these videos and everything goes crazy, uh, because you don't get to see any of these people coming to do the thing that they're doing it just like pops in like first of all that's an effective visual joke so that's why they do it but it also has the effect of of being like you just put on the glasses and this is the real world <laughs> you should right? get the they live overview so you know that reference you can also <laughs> yeah. be i think maybe the second or third person to purchase the they live overview <laughs> the, the other ones are much more popular it's an, it's an in joke among the editors and writers and podcasters that they live is not the best-selling overview despite 
despite our love of John Carpenter and Rowdy Roddy Piper, who is invited on the podcast whenever he wants. Yeah, 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 Absolutely exactly. anytime. Just, right. yeah. Okay, we, we'll actually pick out a, a, a special Girl Scout cookie for him. Yeah. Uh, but that, but, but no, go ahead. The, the other thing that's sort of interesting about it is that um, whereas a, a good grunge song will be over in like you know, no more than seven or eight minutes, a good techno song will, will take you like all the way through the night. So the fact that every, every Harlem Shake video is about 30 seconds long, like you have to presume, if, if you know the musical style, you know that this drop that comes around once is not going to only come around once, right? Like it's, this all will be repeated and presumably the whole structure of it will be, will be repeated. So it'll go back to just the one guy dancing. And then all of the clowns come out of the woodwork again. Um, I'm sort of wondering about about something that you guys are are bringing up about sort of the the semiotics of the drop and the the kind of the what the film theoretical meaning of suddenly boom you know cutting to a, a room full of people partying because it you know in the in the way that the commodity masks the means of production the the film sort of masks the means of production right and like what you don't see in that. Uh, in that you know sudden fifteen seconds in this kind of sudden explosion of of activity is the like two weeks of emailing all your friends and then emailing them back because they like so that they don 't forget about the date and like you know calling them and guilting them so that they drag their giant paper mache heads you know out to the to the gym at the local y right like on saturday at ten o 'clock i 'm sorry it 's the only time we could get the gym at the local y <laughs> and the you know and that, okay, you stand there. No, I'm sorry. No, you can't use the giant paper mache penis. It's not. I mean, it's going on YouTube. They'll take that right down. You know what I mean? Like, there's there is yeah. some there is like some sort of administrative effort. There is like bureaucracy right. behind uh, behind these videos that that I'm kind of using to stand in for the like the bureaucracy of film production generally, and that that gets elided entirely um, by the by the sort of finished artifact, which you know you which like takes out all the you know all the people walking in getting in place like assigning out you know mm-hmm. motions and gestures and props sure. and and all the like mise-en-scene and all you know and and all that crap and i, I you know i want so i wonder if there's anything to this idea that like this actually has to do with music and the production of music especially the production of of sort of techno music which is done digitally and is done in these sort of multi-track recorders where you sort of layer in in, um, you know, uh, tracks. I, I got tracks on tracks on tracks, um, right? Where you kind of put these, you sort of build it up Lego-like as you sort of put la- layers in a Lego sculpture uh, in these things. And then suddenly, you know, suddenly the drop happens, right? Like there's this like build-up section, then a break, then like, then boom, the bass is in or the bass is out. There's these sort of abrupt shifts, but the sort of constructedness and the kind of like painstaking constructiveness of these things is alighted somehow by their... Um, suddenness you know that's yeah, an interesting yeah. thought oh, go on pete oh i was saying like the, and i think that that the the reality of that is i think elegantly communicated in when you go to say a dubstep show and someone is playing the laptop right like like there's a person sitting there with a laptop you know skrillex is standing behind his laptop and he's pushing the buttons to make the music go and it's almost and the laptop sits in as a as an analog for a keyboard or for a guitar bang a rang space bar yeah exactly exactly and so there's this there's this idea that we're comfortable with despite the fact that it doesn't really make sense on its face that like the the music is being played right now right that all these things are happening right now um <laughs> 
when really they happened months ago, years ago, and and we are we are performing them in a way that condenses them and sort of strips away a lot of the the layering that took place to make them happen. Um, now, I mean, granted, I, almost, I mean, to a certain degree, uh, some some techno DJs are notorious for doing just that. Where like when you go to their show, you hear their CD, um, but then there are others who take uh, take great care to like make sure that you don't hear the CD, and they are they are at least mixing it live, you know. And, and oh, playing okay, so that happens. People are mixing it and changing, at least changing. Yeah, levels. I mean. It, it depends. It depends on on the show that you go to see. And uh, like, I, I had a friend uh, from college who went to see uh, Kraftwerk perform, and that was really awesome. But basically, what you heard was it was it was just like the Kraftwerk album. And then uh, the way that that it worked is like right at the beginning of the show, Kraftwerk walked out on stage wearing giant robot costumes. And like went up to their like their uh, their Moog synths and whatnot, and basically someone pressed play on a track, right? And like and they just sort of stood there without moving for a solid two hours of music, and then they like walked <laughs> off, and the crowd was going nuts. And then like for the encore, the robot suits walked back on without Kraftwerk in them, right? <laughs> they were just oh, like wow. now just robots and walked up to the keyboards and like another track played, and that was awesome, right? But then uh, Daft Punk, on the other hand, are famously, like, to see a Daft Punk live show is to have a musical experience you cannot get another way. Um, And there are, like, Daft Punk live albums that circulate, which are, like, you know, um, they're mixed together more fluidly than the Daft Punk records tend to be. Like, the Daft Punk records are a collection of songs, whereas a Daft Punk live show is a sort of curated two-and-a-half-hour block of music um, where you would have a hard time telling where the songs begin and end and it's so on. through-composed soundscape. It's like a fish show, but, you know, with more laptops. Yeah, and more musical content. <laughs> well, let me... <laughs> So let, let me. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uh, a huge fish fan. So you know, you're not offending me. But you so can me, suck at fish fans in the audience. Let, let me raise this question. So, um, and this sort of perspective on it. So if. While, so we're, we're sort of saying, okay, while I watch the Harlem Shake videos, I have a lot of, of understanding and prior experience with genre that is going to color how I watch the Harlem Shake videos, how I experience them, uh, what they mean to me. Uh, I have an expectation that songs like this tend to go on and they tend to repeat, right? And so that kind of affects how funny the joke is that this is, thing is happening, right? And the abruptness of the drop as a content and as a contrast with the level of detail and layering that goes into it as part of it. What does it mean to take that and spread it across the, the creation of many Harlem Shake videos, right? So, so huh. not just one Harlem Shake video, but consider many Harlem Shake videos. Consider many of them playing like in sequence on YouTube or consider them playing in many places simultaneously on YouTube in front of many audiences. Um, consider that perhaps as one musical performance that a whole bunch of people are doing simultaneously for a whole bunch of different audiences, right? Um, that seems to me to have a relationship with what most electronic music that is consumed for the purpose of dance and for sort of dance-derived artistic, like, uh, aesthetic enjoyment mm-hmm. and entertainment. Like, that seems to be of a piece with what that kind of music is trying to accomplish, sort of keeping the groove going, right? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, like, to, to wrap my mind around exactly what's going on there, that you take the, the musical um, extension that is so much a part of techno, but rather than doing it um, in one big start to finish, you do it in uh, in parallel, right? Um, right. 
And like it's it's the same amount of enjoyment, the same amount of like awesome bass drops, uh, same amount of happy people. But it's like everybody gets to be happy for exactly thirty seconds, um, rather than only those people who went out to like to the techno festival getting to be happy for like three hours. Yeah, they should. Uh, they should. <laughs> every time you play one of these things, uh, a little like drawer should pop out of your computer that has like. A, a, an ecstasy tablet the size of a grain of salt and you just, just like let it melt on your tongue <laughs> right 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 it's like it's a micro payment in 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 jam uh, yeah. <laughs> i'm sure that um walter benjamin would have something to say about this right the uh, the drop in the age of mechanical reproduction <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but going back to something that uh that Matt was saying about the all of the work that gets covered up by it because it's so important for these things that uh that the party just happens this is how crazy we are right um so you don't get to see all of the the staging and all of the things where it's like well look if I'm going to pour milk over my head you can't just pour orange juice over your head because that would be stupid um in Hollywood cinema, that's typically displaced onto the genius of the director, right? That, like, you're seeing a wonderful movie because the director is such a great artist. And the fact that, in fact, there's committees and the prop department and all sorts of things going on is all swept under the rug of the director's genius. Whereas here, it's swept under the rug of just, like, how awesome at partying uh, this particular swim team is or whatever. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I was thinking, you're gone. I was just saying, in my own experience, there was definitely not an auteur of the Harlem Shake <laughs> video I was part of. And I think uh, that's like, surprising to me. <laughs> yeah, well, just in the sense of like everybody was given a lot of autonomy to do whatever they wanted to do on camera, and the only direction is to like do it harder, be more extreme, right? Like, um, in a lot of these videos you're looking at, there's so many people that's just not feasible that the person who's making them the video told everybody what to do. Right, like uh, it doesn't seem likely. It seems to me that that the the person, I guess, they're in a tour in the sense that they decided where to put the camera, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not like you know, um, and that's like the eye of the camera is what produces the uh, the work that we're watching, not the dancers sure. that are happening. Uh, which I guess is kind well, of your point. Um, in in uh, in your case, was your Harlem Shake video like an opportunistic Harlem Shake, or was it scheduled? Oh, it was opportunistic. It was like during the it was during like the festival rap party at a comedy mm-hmm. festival, and this comedy group, uh, actually, this comedy group called uh, Aquarius that does musical improv in New York City and is coming up to Boston in a couple weeks to do a show up here. Uh, they they decided one of their guys decided that they wanted to do a uh, Harlem Shake video, and they sort of wrangled everybody to one side of the hotel lobby, right, and then like busted out a cell phone. Is going to be pretty much what it purports to be. That like these people just happen to be in this place, and when they were told to go, they just happened to dance this crazy. But and this is sort of interesting. The more elaborate and awesome the Harlem Shake video that you produce, the less likely that is in fact to be true. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Like the the best Harlem Shake video would be the one where you have some some like flat out Busby Berkeley choreography with people diving into a pool synchronized and coming up as a giant rose petal. Yeah, a lot right? of circles, <laughs> a lot of concentric circles in those Busby <laughs> Berkeley musicals. Yeah. Um, yeah, babes. In, then the other babes thing in, that babes was, in Harlem Shake, right? Yeah, <laughs> babes in Harlem Shake. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is that uh, in terms of what is what is elided when you have techno music, 
right? Like all of the time that's spent putting it together. I feel like for me personally, um, that's not typically how techno works. Like, yeah, you have the drop where it all jumps in at once, but most typically there's going to be a section in the song where it is all actually built up from the bottom a layer at a time. That's like one of the most typical techno things to do is have like, you know, this instrument comes in, then this instrument comes in, then this instrument comes in. And the DJ is sort of showing you how they put together this particular section of loop. Sure. Right. Um, much more so, I think, than in, a, than in a lot of other kinds of music where you have many, many instruments playing in consort. Although it is something that you get in a lot of pop music more generally. But what is always totally elided in, um, in techno music is the actual industrial labor that goes into creating computers and speakers and, uh, and, and like all of the hardware and stuff. Because it's, it's, it's an art form that tends to fetishize like the, the genius who made the sounds. Right. So you have somebody like Aphex Twin who has this, um, this legend surrounding him where he, like, he doesn't leave his, his mother's house in Britain, wherever he is, and every now and then releases these bizarre, bizarre recordings. And it's all just him with machines that he made himself. And he's responsible for every single detail of the music. It's not something like when you have um, Britney Spears where there's this whole studio behind her, right, uh, with songwriters and recording engineers and blah, 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 blah. Aphex Twin did it all himself. But even if he's soldering his own machines, like that soldering iron came from somewhere, right, and that, uh, that, that speaker came from somewhere and so on. And all of those, like, electronic, mechanical, industrial things that went into being able to hear this music are something that you can't think about when you're actually hearing the music. So that's where I feel like the sort of the hidden labor of techno is, is actually, you know, it's in that factory in, in China somewhere where all of our computerized labor is hidden. But isn't that, isn't that a, a, a feature of of all music, right? Because music, even, you know, the, the sort of oldest music or the most traditional orchestral music is made on these, uh, you know, inc- incredibly painstakingly constructed sonic machines like, you know, Stradivarius violins and Busendorfer pianos or something. I suppose. I mean, sort of to, to just to be kind of a, a dick, um, vocal <laughs> music, no, right? Um, yeah, sure. Right. The chorus. Yeah. The chorus. There's no hidden labor in the chorus. Right. Like you see it. You see the actual thing and, uh, you know, being produced unless you think of like the rearing up of, of, you know, children who are great singers as the, you know, the yeah. hidden labor of, of uh, choral music, a cappella choral then- music. I feel like that's almost not even hidden, you know, right? Because when you hear someone whose voice has been very heavily trained, you know that a lot of effort has gone into that training. Sure. Um, more, more hidden is the labor that goes into training the voice of, uh, of somebody like, oh, I don't know, um, Henry Rollins or something, right? Who, like, has a certain way that he sings, but it's meant to sound like anyone could grab the mic and do this to a certain degree. Right. Um, yeah. But I think like, you can compare it to yeah. wines and whiskeys, right? Like, because that to me, like, like fine alcohols, is uh, is probably the product I I would think of where people are most focused on every element 
that goes into the construction. You know, it goes into the the provision of the materials, the various intermediate goods that are produced, right? Mm-hmm. Every, every, even like or like barbecue, right? Like, um, sure. Like you know, the smoke that burned like the the pig shoulder when it was being barbecued, or the whole pig if you're in East Carolina, right? Like there, there's there are certain kinds of art. Uh, and certain kinds of aesthetic experiences and kind of, you know, sensory, sensual experiences where you are conscious of, if not perfectly so, but then like broadly so, of the intermediate goods and, and mechanisms of production mm-hmm. that are used, yeah. right? And, and I would say that a Stradivarius, you are pretty aware, I think, when you're listening to a Stradivarius, of like what a Stradivarius is, or a lot of people can be. Sure. But, um, I, yeah. Yeah. but there's, there's always, I think, like a layer, there's a layer of infrastructure, actually, I think, that always gets, that always gets left out, right? Like consider the, you know, consider Aphex Twin and like, you know, he's probably using a MacBook Pro, right? Well, I actually don't know what Aphex Fix twin. I'm sure there's someone who's going to well actually me because I'm sure we have an expert uh, in he only, this. He's on Ubuntu. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, even that is too commercial. He like compiles the kernel from source himself, and uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so right, like so even so, suppose he's working on a stock MacBook Pro, right? Like you know, and suppose you think of the. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to consider that that machine to consider that artifact and not to have some layer of the process of getting it from you know I don't know raw aluminum to you right um, that you that you leave out like maybe you know maybe it's the maybe it's the UPS driver you know what I mean maybe it's sure. the the uh, what the the person loading the plane from you know. Know, from China to the United States, maybe it's that. I mean, there's been increasing visibility given to the uh, to the factory workers who actually assemble these things over the course of the last year, and the whole you know Mike Dizey thing and the whole um, uh, investigation into Foxconn and and stuff like this. But there are there are sort of many 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 more layers of it. What about? Right, the whole army of people that it takes to deliver um, electrical power to your house, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah. about or the the miners who produce the coal that in in the states at least is the what the lion's share of our electric power, uh, uh, electrical power or or things like this. Once, I mean, sort of once you start like peeling away the marxist onion it's 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 <laughs> what it's alienated turtles all the way down right right sure yeah well we can talk about <laughs> chopping up the marxist onion is a great way to start crying i tell you what yeah. well we can talk about this in terms of the harlem shake right because the harlem shake specifically does show you certain aspects of the supply chain right and it, and it holds back others Right. So, and there are certain ones that it, that it focuses on. So, one of the big economic engines in this Harlem Shake videos is uh, cell phones. When you're watching a Harlem Shake video, it's usually pretty obvious it was shot in a cell phone, right? Like both because of its time, how long it is, because of the setting in which it is happening, the people who are using it. There's a lot of little cues that you can use to determine that this okay, this was shot on somebody's iPhone in their living room, right? And so there is going to be. There are aesthetic qualities related to cell phone video that have to do with different, you know, rules that are set on YouTube or ways that Tumblr happens to work, fonts that are popular on the internet, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. The other one that I think is interesting it shows is that um, it shows the role of the consumer of music in the consumption of music. 
uh, in, as an economic engine, as an economic driving force of the creation of this kind of music, uh, which is kind of as much about the common experience of people who are listening to it as it is to the person who came up with it in the first place. So, like, mm-hmm. you can compare the one. The one thing that this gets compared to a lot in the media is Gangnam Style, right? And so, with Gangnam Style, is like a one-to-many relationship where you have Psy doing the Gangnam Style dance, and then he teaches a lot of other people to do it, and then they are all doing it in unison with Psy, and that's like the conventional way of doing it. But in this case, it's like many-to-many. Right there. As far as I know, there is an initial, there is a first Harlem Shake video, but it is not remarkable, right? Like, it is not, it is not, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's not like, it doesn't stand out as like the canonical Harlem Shake video that teaches everyone else how to do it. You watch a bunch of them, and you glean from watching a bunch of them how they work, and then you produce your own. And so, like, the people who are producing them are part of the way that you experience, the people who are enjoying them. Are, are part of how you experience them being produced. It's kind of like there's an aerobarol quality, which I don't think is an adjective, but I'm going to <laughs> use it as such. Like the Harlem snake is eating its own Harlem tail, right? Like, oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the aerobaros. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, think, yeah, yeah. But that's sort of one of the... Um, I agree. I think that's totally, totally right. But I think that that's one of the things that so often gets lost about... Um, remix culture and and sort of the liberating power of YouTube and so on is that the fact that we can all play in this little sandbox where there is no divide between consumer and producer and everyone has a, a seat at the table and so on is like is only because there's so much going on behind the scenes to make that happen. Um, so that like do you understand what I'm saying there? Uh, oh yeah. Like, like the, the whole argument like a good a good example as we've brought up previously is like people who own like tech companies that own infrastructure that allow for the sharing of content love to talk about how the sharing of content is like totally free and democratic because they're the ones who own and control it so they want you to think that nobody owns or controls it right like uh you know what i mean like it's sort of similar to that kind of thing where it's like um oh like uh, gosh, I think, I think there was an old commercial, and this is really dated at this point, which was making fun of, of the dot-com boom commercials. And I, it comes to mind every once in a while where like, one of the lines in the commercial is like, in the matter of years, there will be more people on the internet than there are people in the world. <laughs> right? Like, and it was talking. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And the idea that the internet is this like inexhaustible resource of creativity and innovation that does not need to come from anything or do anything or go anywhere. It just, it just, it, it just is. It just grown. Right? It yeah. just grown. I don't know. Have, haven't you ever had a fight with like an IRC bot or like one of those artificial intelligence things that? It's like supposed to be giving you therapy or like, you know. Oh, get, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. You know, it's the I, freaking Turing test is really biased in favor of passive aggressive people <laughs> or robots. It's so much easier for a robot to act passive aggressive and plausibly human than to like not be passive. What do you yeah, think? Then to actually know, engage, think? right. To, then to actually engage <laughs> you in conversation. I think there may be more, more people on the internet than there are people in the world. It's just that, you know, that extra portion are all assholes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> There's, there's also – I don't know if this is still Benjamin, but one of the great uh, – one of the symbols I really like from that period of, uh, of, of literary criticism is when they're talking about uh, – and I forget who this is – talking about the golden arches, right? Like talk about the McDonald's golden arches. And then the McDonald's the golden arches stand for and symbolize an inexhaustible, eternal, and uniform supply of ground beef, <laughs> right? Like this idea <laughs> that like the golden arches are communicating to you that it is a fact of reality. 
reality that there is an infinite amount of hamburger that you can eat, uh, and it will sure. always more or less cost the same, which is just not true, right? Like yeah. each cow does yeah. have to grow and be slaughtered, and there is a finite number of them just because it's more than you could eat in one sitting or perhaps several does not yeah. mean that it's like more than exists. Right, I like, like that. Uh, the, the way that that pans out, right, is that like to the degree that you cannot, in fact, eat infinite hamburgers, it's your fault. Like either you don't have <laughs> enough money or your stomach isn't big enough. But really, that's on you because we have infinite hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, which is a big part of social media too. I think, right? It's like you're not doing enough. You're not getting enough clicks. Like everything is happening all the time, always, and all sorts of amazing things are going on. You know, like where sure. are you when this is happening? That's like the. I, I heard a uh, somebody go after the Microsoft tagline, where do you want to go today? Once where it was like this, uh, this, this arrives, this arises from the assumption that people ought to go places, which is like an awfully big (laughs) supposition. (laughs) Also, I mean, if you're trying to capture the internet audience, like nice job there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like to the fridge, then back to the couch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'll about do me for today. Well, I mean, that also raises the question with the Harlem shake where like, the first half of the Harlem Shake videos are tend to be people just sort of hanging around, and there's a pretty explicit uh, condemnation or implicit condemnation of just hanging around that comes yeah. in these videos, right? Yeah, like like uh, the, the one guy who is dancing prior to the drop is the hero of the Harlem Shake video as, as, a, as a genre. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 totally. And everybody else is sort of like, is, has to be convinced by the hero's great deeds to like take up the hero's banner and like imitate the hero, right? Like, um, yeah. <laughs> the, take the up, take up of, the Power Rangers burden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the hero is sort of like Aragorn in that apparently he has an infinite army of ghosts at his beck and call. <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> it's like, honestly, every Harlem Shake video only has to be like half as long. Although that's kind of hilarious because no one would watch them, right? If it just started with like the with the good part, it would be yeah. nothing. <laughs> You're talking about how like they could have they could have ended the War of the Ring immediately just by using the ghost army like from the blocks, right? Yeah. And it's like end the Harlem Shake video immediately if you just have the guy with the giant Easter Island head just dancing on camera, right? Like yeah. you don't have to yeah. have him like reading a book of anthropology and then instantly having a giant Easter Island head. The anthropology book isn't important. Right, yeah. like there's a there's a law of the internet. I forget who it's named after, um, which is that like every YouTube video benefits from starting one third of the way through. But, like oh, you, you'll yeah, never yeah. miss anything if you skip over the first third of a YouTube video. But with a Harlem Shake video, it really doesn't work because you'll just get the crazy part. And then, like I was saying before, right? Like having that big of a contrast within the song makes that the only content of the song. And either either section on its own is really like totally vacant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, it's all in the in the uh, the collage, like putting sure. the neck. It is. I just think it's really cool. Um, and I know this isn't a huge insight on my part, but I think it's really cool what happens when you put things next to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's because especially Thanks, Eisenstein. Um, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Point taken. You know, like there it is. Like the entire history of film, right? Is like this, but um, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But there's also still, I mean, we, we joke about this as if this is a foregone conclusion, but if you, you know, I do improv comedy, I'll use it in that example. There's so much pressure 
and and so many people telling you sometimes to justify the movements that happen between two things or the reasons that two things are next to each other. There's there's definitely this need to provide an explanation uh, that that is is either a huge error or like a necessary evil or like something you should do quickly and earnestly to get out of the way, depending, right? Like we have a mm-hmm. complex relationship with the with justificated with justifying collage. Because um, there's so as much artists, cool. you mean, or, or just as like humans? I think I mean particularly as kind of a, a contemporary narrative, narrative and self-narrativizing culture, um, sure. right? Uh, and I mean, yeah, that, that like that yeah. we all do it ourselves, you know. Yeah. Pre- presented with two objects, we will come up with a narrative that connects them. Yeah, and also the canonical authorities that tell us how we ought to be telling our stories also often will tell us either to or not to justify the things that are next to each other. Well, right. I I mean, it's interesting in improv comedy, right? Yeah, because you're supposed to be able to – there are like a finite number of moves that are are sort of allowed in the – you know, right? The canonical theory of – you know, I don't know, long-form improv, right? Like, you know, you can jump in time or you can sort of jump in in – in stakes or you can you know you yeah. can you can you can kind of turn one dial at a time is the yeah. idea right yeah so so like the word is heightening right and so that's what harlem shake videos are they're like a heightening move right hmm. although to take it to something that that um or that's one way that's one of the many this is like you know uh, 57 ways of talking about a harlem shake right? or something like that it's like yeah. ways of describing it um among the just, snowy mountains the only yeah. thing moving is the harlem shake but but the true masters of this sort of like alienated juxtaposition are probably Monty Python, right? Like, um, I was reading about them in the in the latest edition of the Atlantic. They were talking about like um, there's a new book about about like you can read Monty Python scripts, and they're talking about like what are the benefits and disadvantages of a Monty Python kind of joke, where you take something that's pretty sophisticated, you do kind of what we're talking about here, right? You you take a um, what we talked about earlier, you take something that's very kind of information dense that required a lot of work to put together, right? And you sort of strip out all the work and you drop it into a story. Um, you juxtapose it against things that it doesn't belong next to. And you either explain it or don't explain it or struggle in the moment, but you recognize the alienation in the two things being next to each other. So like the Spanish Inquisition being in a living room. Right, it's like well, uh, this this to an extent, the sketch is about explaining why the Spanish Inquisition is in the living room, but to the extent, the sketch is also about how you don't have to and aren't and can't explain why the Spanish Inquisition is in a living room. But it's also right? it's I mean it's also the this the sketch is about. Um, the phrase, I didn't expect a sort of Spanish Inquisition, right? And like, it's sort of explaining, it's doing the work of poetry. I mean, it's very good poetry in a sense because it's, it's taking, uh, what a, a kind of, uh, phonological construct that, that we have come to accept and making it strange and sort of filling in the, the groundwork or like taking it to its, taking it to its, its absurd conclusion, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, you can think about that in terms of Harlem Shake of like, well, there's nothing really strange about a mascot, a sports mascot in the stands of a basketball gym surrounded by screaming 15 year olds, like jumping up and down. Right. Like that's a that's a totally normal thing to happen. How do you make it weird so that and how do you alienate it so that you can then revisit it and, and kind of like understand what's happening? And how, how do you this is like the drop. How do you make the drop? How do you open and close the parentheses so the base can kick in? Well, you show everybody sitting in the gym looking really bored and normal. You act like that's the mundane thing when really that's kind of the weird thing 
because mm-hmm. people don't sit in gyms normal, right? Like sure. they, they go to gyms right. to go celebrate. But anyway, so there's like a bunch of sort of chiasmatic crossings of priorities that's going on. That's very – yeah, I mean that's very, very interesting, right? Like it's the, – the first part of the Harlem Shake video is not the normal part. Yeah, I mean, sure, and to, right. some, to some extent it might be, to some extent it might not be. Because like, I like to imagine every day at Gawker Media, they're all, you know, I don't know, standing on their desks and, you know, <laughs> pelvic thrusting one another. I mean, that could be, if you were to try to develop, like, a critical, a critical rubric for, like, categorizing Harlem Shake videos, I think a big criterion would be how normal is the thing that is happening at the beginning of the Harlem Shake video, uh, for the people in that situation, in that number, sure, right, like, um, and, and then like, so what is the expectation of this universe? Are they like our own universe, or is it fantastical? Like, is it sure. a movement toward our universe, or a movement away from our universe, or both? Right, like, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I want to see like uh, David Lynch's Harlem Shake video, <laughs> where, like the stuff that's going on prior to the dance party is deeply alienating, and then after that, it's just a dance party, which you know. <laughs> As many stuffed giraffes as you have floating around, it's still just a dance party. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I feel like probably you can, um, if you were to trace back in history, like the Harlem Shake video, over time you will see that what starts out as just people dancing after the drop gets weirder and weirder uh, to the point where, you know, if it doesn't just run its course, as it probably will, uh, you will very soon have people doing stuff that is not dancing at all, you know? Like, yeah. like after the after the drop, they will rob a liquor store or something like that, <laughs> because um, that. Oh yeah, I was going all the way to like Eli Roth territory, and it's like, well, after the drop, they kill a cheerleader or something. Sure. Oh. Um, see, see, like, yeah, one of some of my friends in a Philadelphia improv group made one where one of them just lies down and irons his chest, like with an iron. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah. Like, like grimacing in pain or. Uh, it's, it's you can't quite see his face because a guy is standing in front of him doing the robot. Okay, so, there you yeah. go. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think that in its in its pure form, probably in sort of the classical version of this, it's sort of like an ad for dubstep music, or it's mm-hmm. like you know th- this is this is your normal life and this is your life when when you're dancing to this music, and the the part after the drop is meant to be a more or less accurate representation of like actually going to, uh, I mean. I don't think the kids call them raves no more, but you get what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And then as it sort of gets more and more Baroque and gets picked up by more and more people who actually have no connection to or fondness for this music and the, like the culture that the music comes out of, I don't really, you know, just like acting like they would at one of these shows is no longer a meaningful thing because they wouldn't go to one of these shows. So it just becomes act totally bonkers. Um, yeah. But even that is more normal than the sort of the sitting around preparing to act bonkers while one person dances in the background. Yeah. You know what phenomenon you just, you just made me think of in describing that is, uh, is the wave, right? Like the, the <laughs> dance known as the wave. Um, sure. Like when you're like in a giant sports stadium and you, and you stand up from your chair and put your hands over your head. And the purpose of doing that is to watch the wave go around the stadium and it's about look at how many people there are cheering for this team in this stadium like this this stadium is huge and packed and then what and like you also it is sort of requires that the arena be round so that you can see the people who are doing the wave right sure. like so you can watch the wave go but how many times have you been at like i mean maybe maybe i 
do this more often than most, I'd probably bet on it. But you're at like, you know, a high school sporting event when you're younger and people do the wave and there's like 30 people in the audience, right? And they like, <laughs> and they're sitting on bleachers next to each other and they do the wave. And it's like, hey, no one can see them because they're looking out. Right. And yeah. And the, the, it's, it's along the bleachers are along the side of a gymnasium and are perfectly straight. Exactly. So you can't see it. You're not demonstrating that there are a lot of people there because there aren't, right? Like, and so <laughs> the purposes of the original wave are lost, but you're doing it because there's something energy that's associated with the wave, not with why you were doing it originally, but something you saw and you liked and you, and you co-opted. Well, so right, you can you're, even you're, trying to put, you're trying to import a sense of moment into rather a less momentous occasion than your average like Yankee game or something like that, right? Right, right. right. And so that, that's what it is. It dubstep's sense of moment. It's actually, right? I mean, it's interesting that this is interesting to me, right? Like the, what we're talking about. And I wonder how much effort we spend... Uh, if you were to really sort of break down our activities, uh, how much effort we spend um, demonstrating to ourselves what we are doing at the moment? <laughs> does that, you know what I mean? Does that does that make sense? Like that that the, that that sort of the performative aspect of the performative aspect of a lot of what we do is actually kind of inward directed, sort of directed at our ourselves to sort of convince ourselves that what we're doing is either worthwhile or important or fun or yeah. uh, you know. Um, sort of- I sure I'm enjoying doing this podcast with you guys. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a, a lot of ritual. I feel like a lot of ritualistic behavior works out that way, sure. which is why it's it's obvious when you're looking at um, sports fan behavior because so much of that is ritualistic. Uh, you know, unless you want to actually watch the game like a chump, all you have to do while you're sitting there is is rituals. Um, but definitely, I would say with this podcast, our, our like our question at the beginning, our, our uh, it probably doesn't deserve like that's to demonstrate that this podcast is actually a kind of um, you know a a work of art for consumption of, of of people who are fans of our art rather than just like a conversation between the three of us. Well, that's, I mean, that's know? actually that's very interesting because it gets at something that I was I was I really wanted to bring up. I'm not sure we have a ton of time for it. And here you thought that we wouldn't be able to get an hour out of the Harlem Shake. Oh, <laughs> oh ye of little faith. Um, we have a, I mean, we have a whole backup topic queued up and we're not even going to talk about it. But um, <laughs> but uh, right. Like the. the the, you were talking about the the sort of continuum in techno music between live mixed or sort of one of a kind, right? Like bespoke techno music created at the performance and the Kraftwerk model of essentially hitting play uh, and standing at the Moog synthesizers and not, not doing anything. And I think that that's also co- a continuum between like, who is the music for? Is the, the, is the music meant to um, engender an experience in the audience or is the music meant to like be an experience? Experience among the musicians to which the audience bears witness, right? And I think that actually, honestly, not to to gaze into the navel so long that it starts gazing into me, but the the this podcast has that, um, you know, has that sort of dual uh, nature where it's you know it is a, a sort of ritualistic coming together among friends, and what's important is the sort of business that's transacted between friends, but also what's important is the business that's transacted between the the, the podcast as an artifact and um, you know and the audience, right? And that like sort of in that YouTube model of sort of everyone is a creator, everyone is a consumer. Um, there's there's a, a good deal of slippage. Um, as to who it's for 
and, you know what I mean? And, and like, why as to the, the sort of final cause of the, uh, of the podcast? Yeah, I think that, that this is one of the reasons that, and I, I sort of imported this from my own uh, classes in college with Deb Margolin, the playwriting teacher that I think we both know pretty well. Um, and she has a real beef with people calling work, work self-indulgent. She wouldn't use the word beef, but I, I would use it. Um, <laughs> but that uh, she doesn't like it when people call work self-indulgent because so much of work, if not all work, is self-indulgent to one degree or another, right? It's like we can we could talk about who is this really for? This when you raise the question of who this art is for, you're also kind of by extension raising the question of who the other art is for, right? And, and there, I think there is an aspect of these things that is generally going to be for ourselves. I mean, the other thing this made me think of is, is Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, right? Which is like, there's that great moment where like the Soviet leaders are, the Soviet cornermen are telling uh, Drago that he needs to beat Rocky. He's just, he's just been hit by Rocky pretty hard for the first time. And they're telling him that he needs to like beat Rocky uh, in a certain way in order to so the party doesn't lose face or whatever and he yells like yasibya yasibya which uh is translated roughly as like i do this for me like, i do this for me like i don't do this for any of you and he's kind of yelling at the audience too right like of the movie being like i ivan drago i'm going to punch rock in the face and i don't care whether you like it or not this one's for me right and it's like um but is it really like the way he's doing it is something that we really want to see too uh, and Ivan Drago is, of course, not a real person. And that yeah. makes it all and more it actually, complicated. It, you talking about Ivan Drago reminds me of Carl Drogo. Uh, when, <laughs> when, you know, when he makes the, uh, the promise uh, to Viserys that he will, ride the, uh, he will ride the wooden horses across the narrow, narrow seas. What he says in the novels, anyway, is I, Drogo, will do this thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Where there's this, this sort of uh, conflation of like individual promise and sort of promise as a, you know, vowing as a mode of as an existential mode and uh, and as a way of like affirming the self and of this you know the self's power and also of like doing something for someone else and like you know the sort of instrumental benefit uh, to Viserys of you know reconquering the seven kingdoms and when you talk <laughs> about Carl Carl Drogo that makes me think of Carl Winslow Right, who, who, whenever Steve Urkel does anything in Family Matters, is is basically like, why did you do this? You, why did you do this, thing, Steve? You, this, why do you not care about other people? Right? Why do you not care about the way that your actions affect other people? Right? Like, why do you hurt us? Why do you cause us pain? Why do you cause me personal pain? <laughs> when really, the thing that Steve has done is for the benefit of others, and those others are us. Right? And so, like, Steve is actually the least selfish character on Family Matters because he's, well, he's the one who exists to cause us pleasure. <laughs> Right, like, and you should also remember. We have to remember the lesson of Carl Weathers, right? Which is that (laughs) acting is basically about getting a stew on, and that Jaleel White, you know, (laughs) at the end of the day, was was also indulging himself as well. Right. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot more to say about this but i think we have to leave our conversation there because that is our time as they say in the comedy <laughs> world so um, really really it's because we don't have any other things that sound like call wawa but 
<laughs> but you can put them in the comment thread. You know, you can join the conversation. You are you are not only a consumer; you are a producer of overthinking. Uh, you are an overthinker. There's, I mean, and so left as an exercise, like we can maybe even like catalog the things that are left as an exercise to the reader. It's interesting to me that it's the Harlem Shake and not like I don't know the the Lower East Side Shake or the Brooklyn Shake or so. You know what I mean? Is there something like shake. yeah, right? Like is there the, the Hastings on Hudson Shake? Um, is there something about like Harlemness? I mean, is something racial being engaged? here what's the relationship of of you know the harlem shake to the harlem renaissance um you know what would langston hughes do wwlhd which is the bracelet that i wear every day does um, it explode <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it explodes at the point that the drop comes in the song and like suddenly there's just explosions um everywhere which is how i'm raising the stakes on the Harlem Shake video. So like that, that, I mean, the, the sort of the racial implications among other things are left as an exercise to the overthinker, uh, by emailing podcast at overthinking it.com by calling two zero three two eight five six four zero one, calling or texting two zero three two eight five six four zero one, uh, or leaving a comment in the comments on the show notes for this episode. Uh, this has been a great one guys. Um, the one for the one for the record books, I think. And so it remains for me to thank you and to tell our audience that we will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the internet at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Did I do that? Bangarang! Where's all my lost boys? Shout, 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 shout to all my lost boys. We rowdy. <laughs>